John 16, 16 to 33. Jesus went on to say, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. At this some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me, and because I am going to the Father? They kept asking, What does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you're speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you now believe? Jesus replied, A time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Thank you, Colin for that reading of God's word. Let's just pray for a moment as we approach this text together. Heavenly Father, in your Son, Jesus Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Enlighten our minds by your Holy Spirit and grant us that reverence and humility without which no one can understand your truth through that same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. 20 years ago this month, my wife and I were nervously waiting in a hospital in South London, a place called Kingston, and we were awaiting the arrival of our first baby. Melissa was induced on a Wednesday afternoon, just after lunch, but the baby did not actually arrive until Friday night. So she experienced 54 hours of labour. It was intense. It was the most intense experience that we'd ever had in our lives at that point. Finally, on the Friday night, she was rushed into the operating theatre at half past ten for an emergency caesarean section. And I remember 
when she was taken in, waiting outside in the corridor on my own and being given some theatre greens, you know, the sort of things you see on the in the TV, and waiting outside to be taken in, and I was given one job, really, which was to hold her hand and try and speak comforting words. And as I was in the room and we were there together and Melissa was sort of fading in and out with painkillers and it seemed like 15 staff were running around except for the surgeon who was dead calm. Uh, I had We had an unforgettable experience, an experience of contrasts, an experience of a, an agonising, rather traumatic build-up that led to the tiny cry of a newborn child and a feeling of unforgettable joy. And I will never forget that, to witness firsthand the suffering of a woman, uh, the aspects of the birth that can only be described as agony, but then to see the relief and the joy when the baby was born. And you know, the suffering was actually pretty quickly forgotten, so much so that she gladly went through that experience another four times. People do this. Because there was agony and anguish, but then there was pure joy. And it was absolutely unforgettable. And with that birth, a whole new order of things came about. A new life came and it changed us forever. Now, that image of the woman giving birth and of suffering and joy is at the centre of our text today. Jesus used it and he used it with good reasons. Jesus here is talking to his disciples. He's preparing them for traumatic events that are about to occur. The very next day he will be dragged before a sham court and falsely accused and convicted. He'll be sentenced to death and the Roman authorities are going to execute him using crucifixion, a gruelling state-sponsored torture. So these disciples, these close friends of Jesus, are about to be swept into a sharply painful, intense period of their lives. It will be traumatic. They will see Jesus taken away, but then they will see him again because he will rise from the dead. And as we listen into their conversation that night, we learn some of the most important things that Jesus wants to teach them and therefore he wants to teach us. Now, we're coming to the end of a, a section in John's Gospel that's often called the farewell discourses. Jesus is saying goodbye and Starting in chapter 13 and running through this chapter here, he's giving these, these, these poignant, powerful uh, words of encouragement and instruction as he's about to depart. Right after this section, actually, uh, Jesus is going to stop teaching them and pray. And next week, Jez is going to uh, take us through that, that prayer of Jesus in John 17. So this is what he says now to prepare them for what's to come. And I want to just try and summarise the impact of this message of Jesus here in six little words six words are you ready joy is coming so take courage joy is coming so take courage it's the message that those disciples needed to hear certainly did and, and they had to know that in order to navigate the painful experience ahead and it's what we need to hear too because what we really need if we're going to live well in this world is joy how can we know joy that will give us courage? There are two points that emerge from our text today. I want to think with you briefly about them now. There's a promise of joy and there's a pursuit of joy. The promise of joy and the pursuit of joy. The Firstly then, the promise of joy. We pick up the narrative here in John 16 and verse 16. Jesus has been teaching now for some time about how he's going to have to leave the disciples. 
But he says earlier in the chapter that it will actually be better for them if he goes away because he will send the Holy Spirit. And he's just been teaching them about who the Holy Spirit is. He uses this special title, the paraclete, which can be translated the, the advocate or the counsellor or the helper or the comforter. And some nuance of all those words sort of mingles together in, in this person, this third person of, of the Godhead who will come, the Holy Spirit, and be the paraclete. And then he's taught them about what the Holy Spirit's going to do, which is to lead them into all truth so that they will be able to write the scriptures. And what the Holy Spirit will do from then on, which is to use their words to convict and convince the world and bring people to faith in Jesus. But, you know, at this point, these disciples have no category that makes sense of a Messiah who is going to die. Just just no category for that. They certainly don't have a category for a Messiah who's going to die and then rise from the dead. And they certainly don't have any kind of concept of why the Messiah would then abandon his people in favour of the Holy Spirit. So they're actually utterly perplexed. And that's what's coming through in verses 16 to 19. We can walk through them, but you probably noticed while Colin was reading, there's an awful lot of repetition here. Jesus says, in a little while you will see me no more. And then after a little while you will see me. And so the disciples start talking to each other. And it could almost be comic, you know, what does he mean? saying in a little while you see me no more and then after a little while you see me and they keep asking each other what does he mean by a little while and then Jesus verse 19 sees that they want to ask him about this and so he says to them are you asking what I meant when I said in a little while and it gets repeated again so what's going on here now good principle whenever you see something repeated in the bible you know it's there because something important is being talked about a principle there that here we have a double repetition which shows that there's something important uh, in view and that suggests that Jesus sees his departure and his return as absolutely central absolutely central to everything he's been saying for the last few chapters in fact absolutely central to his entire ministry in a little while you will see me no more what does that mean he's going to die and then after a little while you will see me. What does that mean? He will rise again. So to help them prepare for what's coming, this experience of Jesus dying and then being raised again, Jesus now tells them about the emotional impact of what those events will uh, bring. Verse 20, very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. See, here is uh, strong emotional language, weeping, mourning, grief. These are very intense words. This is language that's used of bereavement, of loss. It's language of people wailing and mourning at funerals. But there's a wild contrast in here, a glorious contrast. Your grief will turn to joy, says Jesus. Now, how on earth is that going to happen? The answer is that Jesus will rise from the dead. They will experience true, pure joy when they see him. And it will be absolutely unforgettable. But not only that, and, and please hear me on this. It's not just because their personal experience of having Jesus back will be joyful. But because of his resurrection, a whole new order of things will begin in the world. New life will enter the world. Resurrection life. 
and the world will never be the same again. The world will change forever. Now, you might be thinking, well, hang on a minute. Where did you get that from? And the answer is the image that Jesus uses there in verse 21, the woman giving birth to the child and the pain, you know, and then um, the, she forgets the anguish because of the joy. And what Jesus is using here is a common illustration from the Old Testament, well known to the Jewish people of the time when God's people would suffer and then relief and joy would be brought about by the promised salvation that God would bring. So Jesus is reaching into their cultural memory and their knowledge of the scriptures to bring them an image that they're very familiar with, which is an image of the world to come. The disciples know it because they know their Bibles. You could find this in numerous passages in Micah, Jeremiah, Isaiah and the Old Testament prophets. But I'm going to read you just a section from Isaiah 26, because this is perhaps the closest to what Jesus is talking about here. Here's Isaiah 26 verse 16. Lord, they came to you in their distress. When you disciplined them, they could barely whisper a prayer. As a pregnant woman about to give birth writhes and cries out in her pain, so were we in your presence, Lord. We were with child. We writhed in labour, but we gave birth to wind. We have not brought salvation to the earth, and the people of the world have not come to life. But your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. Now, do you see that image there? The image of the suffering and the travail and the pain of giving birth and then the new joy of new life. But in that passage connected to resurrection, Jesus is using this illustration deliberately. He's saying that his intense suffering on the cross is actually taking God's punishment due to our sin. And when he rises on the third day, he's introducing a whole new world order that will be characterised by new life, resurrection life, life beyond the grave. And so on the final day, the dead will wake up and shout for joy. What Isaiah dimly saw through the power of the Holy Spirit eight centuries before Christ is now going to become a reality through Jesus' cross and resurrection. Joy is coming. So take courage. Jesus applies the emotional realities of all this in verse 22. He says, so it is with you. He's talking to them right there. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. <laughs> what words? No one will take away that joy. Those are words that they needed to hear. You know, those are words that we need to hear. Words we need to believe. Words we need to live. This joy is what we really need. Something that can't be taken away. Why do I say that? Because you know our culture is deeply committed to the idea that if you could only just change your circumstances, your life will go well and you'll be happy. If you're not happy, the culture says, you need to change your circumstances. So just look at your life and make some changes. You maybe need some more money. You need a new job. You need a new house. You need a new car. You need a new husband, you need a new wife, new baby, 
new lover, new holiday, or maybe cosmetic surgery, a new you. <laughs> but if you sit and think about it for a moment, that idea is obviously false because the real problem is not your circumstances. The real problem is inside you. Some time ago, I was talking to a very wise couple, some friends of ours who were very wise. We often turn to them for advice. And uh, at that time, I was talking about uh, job opportunities and things changing and life. And the woman said to me, well, you do know if you go, for a, go to a new job, and nothing's really going to change because it's still the same you going to it. <laughs> Good point. What Jesus is addressing here is of vital importance to every single one of us because the thing that we really need to live in this world is not for someone to magically change our circumstances. What we actually need is an inner wellspring of joy that no one can take away. What is joy? If you look up your dictionary, it'll say something like this. Joy is a feeling of inner gladness, delight or rejoicing. And there's certainly some of that in the Bible's usage. But the biblical meaning goes a little bit deeper. Here's a great Welsh preacher of the 20th century, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He wrote this. The world has never seen anyone who knew joy as our Lord knew it. And yet he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So our definition of joy must somehow correspond to that. Joy is something very deep and profound, something that affects the whole entire personality. In other words, it comes to this. There's only one thing that can give true joy, and that is contemplation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He satisfies my mind. He satisfies my emotions. He satisfies my every desire. He and his great salvation include the whole personality and nothing less. And in him, I am complete. Joy, in other words, is the response and the reaction of the soul to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's something very, very profound and deep there. That's the promise of joy. And although these disciples were about to be swept into trauma and pain and grief, they would know joy so profound that it would be like a new mum forgetting her birth pains because of the delight of the baby. Their joy would come about because of a new life, not a baby, but the life of Jesus. And not simply getting Jesus back as their friend and Lord, but knowing that the day of salvation had come and that there was the dawning of a new world, a new creation. So let me ask you, do you want to taste joy like this? Do you want to know it for yourself? Do you, do you want this to be a reality for you? Do you want to experience this kind of joy that no one can take away and live in it? I hope you do. And that's why we need the rest of the chapter. Because from verse 23 onwards, Jesus is going to show us how to pursue joy. So here's the second point. The first one was the promise of joy. And the second is the pursuit of joy. Pursuit. Now, why do I say pursue I've chosen that word deliberately because we need to realise that the Christian life, living as a Christian, is not a passive life. You don't become a Christian and then just automatically get joy downloaded into your soul, like a software update on your computer. You've probably had that experience. You're using your computer and a window pops up and says, you need to get the latest version of whatever. Do you want to download it now? And you say, OK, click, and you just sit there watching as the computer does all the work somehow 
downloading this stuff from goodness knows where and you maybe take a sip of coffee and passively wait until the thing's updated. The Christian life is not like that. It's not like that passive download. It is a journey, it is a fight, and it is a struggle. The older Christian hymn writers knew about this and they wrote about it well. Here's some lines from John Newton in the best known hymn ever written, Amazing Grace. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. That's, that's quite a list. Dangers, toils and snares. I have already come. It is grace has led me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. So you see, it's not passive. There's an active element to the Christian life. And that's why we need to pursue joy. We've got to go after it and not let it go until Jesus gives it to us. You see, as soon as Jesus makes this wonderful promise of joy, that he's going to accomplish through his cross and resurrection, he turns to the disciples and gives them some very practical instructions. Have a look there at verse 23. He says, In that day you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Now, very truly... See that expression is Jesus' way of underlining what he's about to say, of emphasising it, of highlighting it. Very truly I say to you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Very important point. Listen up, Jesus is saying, because this will change your life. What have you got to do to pursue joy? Ask. You've got to ask. Ask and you will receive, he says, and your joy will be complete. Jesus doesn't tell lies. And you're thinking, well, some of you are thinking, uh, <laughs> after all that build up, you're kidding. The secret to profound joy is prayer. <laughs> Coming before God in prayer. Yes, it is. That's the secret. But hold on a minute. Perhaps prayer as we've never seen it before. Prayer like this doesn't just fill the air with words, it changes you, transforms you. And it may well be, friends, I say this with respect, it may be that if you are sensing a, a real lack of joy in your heart, it's because you're not praying like this. We need to learn to pray. Notice three things about uh, this kind of prayer. Firstly, uh, this prayer knows that the Father loves you. This no you know that the Father loves you. Verse 27, the Father himself, that's God the Father, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Now those, that verse in itself is, is worth a whole morning. The idea that God the Father loves you. God, the Holy One, the Eternal One, the Sovereign, the One who made and sustains the universe, looks at you, Christian brother, sister, and a smile goes across his face. Remember somebody saying years ago, he has your picture in his wallet, uh, your photograph on his fridge magnet. It's a bit twee, but you get the image. God really loves you. It says here, you love Jesus. God is so delighted with that. He loves you. 
Now, we then have to put away all those images that we've carried into our concept of God, that he's this distant, forbidding figure, sort of a grumpy granddad in the sky. You know, you have to do stuff for him to get things out of him. He doesn't really like being nice. He's kind of judgmental. You know, it's the kind of dad who takes you around the shop and shows you everything and at the end says, well, you can't have any of it. God is not like that. We need to understand, Jesus says, that the Father really loves you. So when you come before God in prayer, you come with that posture, with that identity of somebody who is coming before a father who absolutely loves her or him. That's the first thing about this kind of prayer is who we come to. And secondly, we learn that the father really listens. Look again at verse 23, 24. Very truly, Jesus says, I tell you, my father will give you whatever you ask for in my name. Until now, you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Jesus is saying the father's listening. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. He's always there. And now we have this inexpressible privilege as children of God through Jesus. We can come to the father and ask him for things. And he's always listening and ready to answer. Now, notice we're asking for things in Jesus name. That doesn't mean that you sort of add the words in Jesus name to the end of any prayer and that sort of validates it what he's talking about is the idea of the name is the whole <clears throat> represents the whole person the the character of the person the purposes of the person is summed up in their name in the ancient world so to ask something in Jesus name is to ask something that would line up with the character and the purposes and the the, the mission of Jesus to ask something in Jesus name is not to say I want something that's really for me, but I'll just sort of tag Jesus' name onto the end of it. No, asking for something in Jesus' name is asking for something that he would want, that he would will. So to pray like that, we need to think ourselves into, using the scriptures, the actual mind of Jesus and the mission of Jesus. And knowing, for example, when he taught his disciples how to pray, he said, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. First of all, we pray about God's priorities, God's kingdom, God's agenda. And that doesn't mean we're irrelevant. Jesus also taught them to pray, uh, give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive others. Lead us not into temptation, deliver us from the evil one. So prayer like this, prayer to the God who listens, is in Jesus' name, it's aligned with Jesus' purposes, and therefore it's prayer that sees answers it sees change. It sees things happen in the world, in your city, in your family, in your life, in your character. As you pray more and more in line with what Jesus would want, you see more and more answers. And that gives you profound joy. Know the Father loves you. He really does. And know that the Father listens to you. He wants you to pray. He invites you to pray. He commands you to pray. And know too that you are never alone. Perhaps this is the most poignant of the reasons which we're given in this section, because Jesus himself was about to be abandoned. Have a look at verse 31. Do you now believe, he replied, 32, a time is coming, in fact has come, when you will be scattered each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. Now Jesus knew uh, sad, the sad reality that the, the very, that very night when they were in the Garden of Gethsemane 
Uh, soldiers would come with Judas the betrayer and with a, a, a gang of Jewish men who were out to incriminate Jesus. Uh, Judas, Jesus would be betrayed by Judas. Uh, there'd initially be a bit of fight and then uh, quite quickly the disciples would see what was happening and would be terrified and they would run away. And it's thought that the guy who actually wrote this gospel may have been the young man whose cloak was grabbed and who ran away naked. So terrified was he. Jesus would indeed be left alone and the disciples would scatter. And yet at that very moment, notice what he says, I'm not alone for my father is with me. Jesus has that confidence of God's presence with him. And you know, because of Jesus, every child of God has that same confidence now. You may feel alone and your circumstances might well lead you to feel alone, but you are never alone because the Father loves you. Jesus himself promised. He gave his disciples this great commission, Matthew 28, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them, and, and, and I will be with you until the very end of the age. So what have we got to do to pursue joy? Ask for it. Pray in Jesus' name, in his purposes, along with his mind and heart, knowing that the Father loves us, knowing that the Father is listening and wants to hear us pour out our hearts to him, knowing that we are never, in fact, alone. That's how we pursue joy, friends. And maybe for some of us here, as we've got to start doing that for the first time. And for others who've given up praying, we can restart today. And for those who have become a bit jaded in the Christian life, just to see that this teaching and realise the freshness of what Jesus was doing at that time and is doing in every life now it comes to him. And I said at the beginning of this sermon, Jesus' teaching in the passage could be summarised in six words. Joy is coming, so take courage. And that's in fact how the text ends here. I've told you this, these things, he said, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Take heart can be translated, take courage, be strong, because he has overcome the world. He's dealt with the big problems of sin, death, judgment, Satan. He's inaugurated a new world order, a new creation is dawning. If you're a Christian, you're part of that right now. So take heart. These troubles that you're experiencing now are light and momentary afflictions that are achieving for you a weight of glory that cannot be calculated. Take heart. He has overcome the world. Now, this is not a happy pill that you can take right now and it'll just sort of solve all your problems and cure all your ills and make everything feel all right instantly. It's not a, an antidepressant. But it is a deeper foundation for life. It is a better foundation for our hearts and our souls, our emotions. Jesus' teaching at this point has a massive implication for people at the present time. So many people are feeling low. So many people I speak to feel trapped by circumstances. Their heads go down. Oh, right, we thought we were coming out of lockdown and we're confined for a while longer. And now we don't know how much longer it's going to be. And we're not confident of what will happen in the future. And we don't know about our own lives, about our education, about our work, about our, our church. We don't know what's going on. 
But you know what? This isn't just about the coronavirus. Grief, sorrow, sadness, they're always with us. They form the baseline, the drumbeat to the music of our lives. Ultimately, we're people who know grief and sorrow. One of the most powerful evocations of that is a song by Bruce Springsteen, Independence Day. I think it's a somewhat uh, autobiographical song, a personal song that he wrote about a young man saying goodbye to his father. And it's not been a good relationship. It's not been an easy relationship. And he, the song says, Papa, go to bed now. It's getting late. Nothing we can say change anything now. I've seen what this town has done to you. I'm not going to let it do that to me. I'm leaving tomorrow from St. Mary's Gate. And as he goes on, he reflects on how change has come to their world and things that they once loved and knew have been altered and lost forever. And he, he sings, everything we know will just be swept away. And that's true of our lives too. Even the very best and warmest and most comforting human relationship one day will end. The things you've known, the things you've loved, one day they'll be swept away. Soon everything we've known will go. Pastor Tim Keller says, imagine a happy family around the table. Imagine a happy family around the table at Christmas. Eventually, one of them will see all the others dead. Death will come. So if we're basing our joy, if we're basing our sense of security in this world on our circumstances, on our relationships, on the things we've known, they won't last. We need something better than that. So this teaching has a very serious, profound, cultural connection for us Christians. Jesus says, take courage, take heart, because I've overcome the world. The reason why we can take courage and even know joy in the face of sorrow and be people of grief and weeping and sadness for the sin of the world and of our own lives, but still be full of joy, is that Jesus has overcome. He's won. He's triumphed. He's conquered. This means that the resurrection of Jesus has overcome the old world order of sorrow and death and therefore overcome that crisis that faces every one of us. We are no longer alone. This is the only way that you can know you have significance in life. If you came from nothing and no one will remember you, then it's hard to escape from the realisation, isn't it, that your life is absolutely meaningless. What a grief. But Jesus makes everything new and everything different. And he says, take heart. I have overcome the world. So even if you have trouble, here is joy that no one can take away from you. Promise of joy and a pursuit. May God bless you as you pursue him this week with new vigour and ask him to change your heart at that foundational level. Let's pray. Loving Father, we are brought near in this text to things that first of all seemed a little bit distant and remote to us. A bunch of men in an upper room 2,000 years ago about to lose their leader. But now we realise that what Jesus is talking about blows away the mists of time and speaks to us right now in our living room 
in our situation, in our experience of sorrow and grief, whatever that may be, and says, take heart. I've overcome the world. So Lord, we want to say now, teach us to pray. You've given us so much advice here, so much teaching. We've only skimmed the surface of it today, but Lord, teach us to pray this week. Teach us to pray today. Teach us to pray right now. To know you, whom to know is life eternal. To know the Father loves us. To know the Father listens. To know that you answer our prayers. Lord, we give ourselves to you again. We renew our vows. We renew our confidence in you and ask that you would shape us, change us, transform us today for the week ahead. Amen.